Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies, and in this episode, we speak to Giles Pegram, CBE, the architect of the Full Stop Appeal, which uh, raised £274 million for the NSPCC. It's uh, still a record-setting appeal, and Giles was very gracious in meeting with us and having a good, frank, honest conversation about how he went about raising the funds with his team and uh, also gave some really interesting and useful insights and tips for uh, anyone listening from other charities who are looking at doing a fundraising campaign or running some kind of fundraising appeal. So uh, yeah, he's, uh, it was a slightly noisy cafe, as you'd expect if you're a regular listener to the podcast, but it was, uh, it was a very good chat. Here's the interview. I'm uh, I'm here in a fairly noisy cafe in uh, central London with uh, Giles Pegram. Thank you for being on Charity Chat. My pleasure. Fantastic. So Giles, you've got heaps and heaps of experience. And as I said to you uh, before, I think we could have a five-hour interview with you, but we'll cut it down and we'll talk solely about um, the NSPCC Full Stop campaign, of which yep. you were a driving force. Yep, absolutely. My understanding is the target of the full stop campaign was 250 million. Yes, it was. Which is in, incredible. And especially it, you know, back then, it wasn't that long ago, but it was, it was well, yes, 15 because, years ago? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, 1995 was right, when okay. uh, I, I first, um, first suggested the target. Yeah. 250 million as a target seems really high. But well, th- th- there's a story behind it, which okay. is that. Um, the senior management team of the NSPCC in 1995, we thought that every charity was going to be doing something spectacular around the millennium. So we sure. had an away day and we to think about what we might do. And our chief executive, Jim Harding, said, uh, if we were really to live up to our name of being the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, our aspiration should be to end Cruelty to Children. Right. Now that was 1995. Now, since then, we've had ending poverty, uh, ending MS. Yeah. There's lots of endings. Yeah. But in 1995, no one had talked about ending anything. It, yeah. it, it was all about fixing the problem, not actually stopping it. Right. So we, we were bowled over by that idea. And then, after a while, Jim turned to me and said, Giles, if, if we were to do this, um, if we were to launch a campaign to aspire to end children, children, how much money do you think you could raise? Yeah. And I thought, well, the biggest appeal up to then had been £100 million for the Royal Opera House. Right. Um, and surely ending children, children was more important than building a new Opera House. And then I went to the other end of the spectrum and thought, well, £500 million. And then I thought, no, that, that would simply not be credible. Right. You know, that's half a billion pounds. That, 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 that's way out of line. So I, I plumped £250 million out of thin air. Uh, and said that into the discussion and everyone said that was a very good idea now I hate to it 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 was an arbitrary sum for me it was then later on uh, worked on by the finance director and the treasurer and the services people so that by the time we launched we had uh, a fully fledged case statement right. that added up to two hundred and fifty million, which pounds. is important, I suppose, because you know if you hear of if, if in certain situations in emergency appeals, for example, where charities have too much money, that seems like a nice headache to have. But but that you really need to know how much money 
you, you know, can you can you actually spend? Is that kind of that must be a consideration? That's one consideration. But the other, the other consideration is that ninety nine percent of donors yeah. will, will simply trust you as to where the figures have come from. Right. And then there'll be one percent, probably you know a grant making trust that will say how did you you know how do you get to 250 million sure, pounds sure. it sounds like a very round number yeah uh, how can you justify it so we had to have the you know the 50 page document that actually went through in detail right, um, okay. um, what 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 it was for and i suppose you need to justify that to to in terms of marketing in terms of all the fundraising that you're doing as part of that campaign you need to be able to say what the impact of that money will do and, and, and how it's going to actually end um, cruelty to children. But by the by the launch, we had a case statement and that case statement had a backing document which was about two inches thick. Well, yeah. And there were 69 projects that made up um, cruelty to, ending cruelty to children. And right. they were the things that we thought would have the biggest impact on ending cruelty to children. Uh, we knew we, we couldn't do it, but yeah. we thought we should be doing the things that were were most credible. Right. Now, my, you've obviously heard of the Full Stop Appeal. Oh, yeah. But can you tell me three of the um, projects underneath it? Blimey. Well, there's, was Childline? Am I no, that was later. Is that later? Okay. I'm at a loss. So is everyone else. <laughs> um, and the fact of the matter is that very few people cared. Yeah. They cared about the really big picture. They, yeah. they, they thought that ending cruelty to children was a tremendous aspiration to have. Absolutely. And when I spoke to groups of donors and said, you know, of course we can't do it, but oh, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. They would unanimously say, yes, it's the right thing to do. So, so they believed in the, the mission. In a sense, they, they believed that £250 million pounds was a credible uh, amount to raise to kickstart that whole process. They, they knew that 250 million wouldn't end yeah. cruelty to children, but it would start the process. And the process needs to be started with a big kick. And it's part of the story, isn't it? I suppose if, in terms of marketing, you know, the, if, if kind of having clear messages, so, you know, the stop cruelty to children being the clear message, and 250 million, I mean, they're two things everyone will remember. Yes. Because they're, they're as outrageous, but aspirations that I think a lot of people would have and would get on board with. Uh, you know Richard Turner? Yes. Um, he, he's passionate about you know, the story, what, what it is you're telling the Absolutely. story. Absolutely, yeah. And, and aspiring to include the children yeah. um, and raising £250 million to kickstart doing it is so simple and vivid that anyone will remember it and they'll be, they'll be able to tell their friends that's what the NSPC is trying to do. Yeah. The NSPCC, like uh, most charities, tries to take a lot of its major decisions by consensus and consultation. Right. So I would often have away days with my key team, building up our strategy. Um, sometimes we'd get a hundred managers, senior managers in the society, in a room, tables of ten, flip charts, post-it notes. And although I found those a bit difficult personally, right. uh, they were always useful because they always produced some really good ideas and you also got the staff buying in to uh, what it is you're trying to do. But with 250 million and ending cruelty to children, I, I didn't think that any consultative process would, would reach that mm. and therefore that to have a consultative process would actually be a sham.
Right. So what I did is I simply called my senior management team, the fundraising senior management team, into my office 9.30 the following morning, uh, told them about the away day, told them about Jim's idea of ending call to the children, yeah. saying that I had committed to a £250 million appeal. I had no idea how we'd do it. We'd discuss that together, yeah. but £250 million was non-negotiable. Okay. Um, so they know the parameters then, and that, I suppose, takes some of the discussion away and, and, well, and it's, it's, it's kind it, of clearer it, it, thinking, it, it, is it? What you had was probably half of them actively enthusiastic mm. because they liked to be aspirational, and half of them wanted to reflect on it, right. but no one was against it. Okay. So that was 9.30. 11 o'clock, we got all the fundraising staff mm. in the office together. So that's about 90 to 100 people. Wow. And I gave them basically the same message. The away day, ending cruelty to children, 250 million pounds, non-negotiable, how we do it. It'll take us months and a couple of years to work out, but that's what we're going to do. Some people were really aspirational right at the start, bought into it and um, said, yeah, yeah, that's the right thing to do. A lot were quiet, and so we need mm. to think about this. There were two naysayers, there were two people who at the meeting said, um, this is crazy, you're going to destroy the NSPCC and its Blimey. reputation. Okay. But, but, but there were only two. Yeah, 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 but so, that's, that's quite a strong sentiment, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, were, they were very strongly of yeah, that view. Yeah, yeah. And I said, to them, well, you know, that, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. Of course. Uh, let's talk one-to-one -one yeah. afterwards and yeah. do it. Because that's quite a negative energy bringing into that room where you're trying to get people all galvanised to move forward. It makes sense to me that you, you talk to your senior management team first, then you went into the, the wider team yeah. with those people on board. If they hadn't have got on board with you, would you have delayed that talking with the wider team, do you think? Was it a case of bringing the senior management team on board first so that you know that you've you're, you're um, aligned in your thinking before taking it to the wider team? I think there's a very important point here, which is that sometimes leaders have to lead. Sure. So, so there wasn't a question of bringing people on board. Right. It, it was virtually a question of you're either on board or you leave. Right, okay. Um, there, was, there, was, there was no negotiation. Yeah. But if you, if you would have asked me how did people respond to the decision-making process? Yes. That is really interesting. Right, okay. Because people had basically been told that we were going to end cruelty to children yeah. or aspire to it and, and we were going to raise 250 million pounds. And as far as I'm aware, and other things may have been said around the water cooler and in mm. smaller meetings, mm. but not one single person objected to the decision-making process. Mm. Nobody said we should have been consulted on that decision. And I think there are some decisions that are so significant yes. that they simply have to be taken. So if, you, if you're Henry V, it's you know, once more unto the breach, dear friends, Absolutely. once more, yeah. uh, now let's break out into small groups and yeah. discuss it with post-it notes and flip charts. It, it just doesn't happen. You give leadership. Because in a way that was the mission, wasn't it? That almost like a, it was almost, I mean, is it fair to say that it, almost the campaign the vision of the campaign was almost became the mission of the organisation. Yeah. yeah. So that's fundamental. So then it is a case of if you don't, if you go to an organisation don't agree with the mission, then there's not much you can do other than to, to move on, I suppose. Well, and, and this goes back to the original thing I said, Jim Harding said at the beginning, 
which is that since 1980, sorry, 1884, we were the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Yeah. We never changed that in a hundred and odd years. And so what Jim was saying is ending cruelty to children is the ultimate of preventing cruelty to children. Yes, so it wasn't that we were changing the mission, it was mm. that we were taking the mission in extremis, as it yeah. were. We were just, we were just saying, let, let, let's like follow it through to its logical conclusion. Once you've got um, the fundraising team of about, say, about 9,500 people on board, how did you go about uh, engaging them during the length of the appeal? Well, this, this, is, this is really important because we were in completely uncharted territory. Yeah. So, in a way, we, we would, you know, there was no absolute plan that this is what will happen when. Sure. So, it was uncharted territory, and also the whole principle behind the appeal was that we handed over ownership of the target to volunteers right. and got them to recruit other volunteers and other volunteers and the staff would support them. Yeah. So that made everything very uncertain um, nice. on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we would do is we would have monthly meetings and I would give uh, a little speech. I'd like to think of it as you know, Henry V, but my closest colleague used to talk about it as some of your older readers will know as um, from Are You Being Served? Oh yeah. Y young Mr. Grace, you're, you're all doing very well. <laughs> um, so that was how he described my um, intros. But then there's a lovely quote from Mao Zedong, yeah. uh, which says, officers teach soldiers, soldiers teach officers, yeah. and soldiers teach each other. Right. So what we did in the majority of the monthly meeting was actually have individual fundraisers talking about what they were actually up to, how they were making things work, you know, how things were going. Mm. And we'd have three or four of those in the hour. And so it was, it was the fundraising staff talking to the other fundraising staff, sure. which was very motivational. Yeah, because then I suppose then it's a, there's a camaraderie to that because they're all working to the same end and, um, and, and being, you know, kind of uh, influenced and uh, aspiring to be as good, or, was there an element of competition there as well? Was there a sense of, you know, uh, fundraisers wanting to do, to raise more than other fundraisers? Or was it more of a kind of a collaborative That's vibe? a very interesting question. I I, I've never thought about that before. I think the answer is absolutely not. Mm. Um, I think the goal was so single-minded that this wasn't about competing right. to do better than your colleagues in the next room. Yeah. It was about working together to get to this 250 million. Right, I see. Um, and if we can ch achieve that together, we will have done something fantastic. Mm. And that required a change in behaviour, because if you take, for instance, um, I think this is public knowledge, the Bamford family, yeah. you know, JCB. Right. Now, Lady Bamford was chair of one of our local groups. Okay. She was, so she was handled by the local groups people. She was also a, social, a national socialite, so she was handled by the major donor and events people. Yeah. So Anthony Bamford was chair of JTB, who adopted us, so they were handled by the corporate partnerships uh, department. Right. So you had three departments yeah. working with the family, and they couldn't work in silos. They, no. they, they had to back off from their individual targets and sit down together and say, how do we maximise support from the family, the company, 
the individuals as a whole. For the full stop campaign? For the full, yeah. Right, okay. So I suppose, so then you've got all the, all the fundraisers in the organisation all singing from the same hymn sheets, all um, working with one another, sharing stories, um, inspiring one another. When things went wrong with the appeal, how did people act? This, this. How did things go wrong? Oh, uh, um, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. <laughs> but constantly, really? uh, things were constantly going wrong. They weren't going to plan. Uh, things were happening differently than we'd hoped for. And was that in terms of uh, meeting deadlines, meeting targets? Is that how things oh, went? Oh, um, meeting deadlines, meeting targets, particular meetings that would have gone particularly badly. Right. People would have got rumour of that. And there's a concept called the management of meaning, which is taught in many management schools. And it basically says that if, if there is a message that can be interpreted in different ways, so something will happen, um, people will get wind of it, uh, they'll discuss it at the water cooler, they'll either build it up, build it down, all things will get added to it, and you can get to a, a, a sense of chaos. Yeah. And what we did was we, we tried to manage the me meaning. So at the monthly meeting, and sometimes even we call people together, what we had to try and do was to manage the meaning of the things that were happening. Sure. And so either at the monthly meeting or the, um, we would call a meeting specially, and we would say, uh, this has happened. Mm. It's not as bad as you think it is. This is yeah. what we're doing about it. Don't worry. Or, because it had to be real, we would sometimes say this has gone wrong, um, it's an absolute disaster, it seriously jeopardises the appeal, however, we're not going to be thwarted, mm. we're thinking about it very carefully, these are the things we're, we're doing, these are the actions we're taking, we'll keep you posted as to how they work. Yeah. But the important thing was that the staff were getting exactly the same message all the time when, when things were going wrong. Mm. And that was extremely helpful in terms of making sure that people had the same message and knew what was happening and, and, and trusted us that and, and we were I, being I honest. I suppose that, that trust and the, the kind of the transparency internally about when things were going wrong and how things were, be, how things were going progress and things, I suppose that's more of a, um, that, that, that would have been more of a benefit than, than had you tried to keep things quiet, you know, if things were, weren't going quite the corner plan. Is that fair to say? That, that again is a very good point. Um, and we, we had looked at it from the positive point of view of trying to get everyone understanding the message. Mm. Um, but of course, in a lot of organisations, with a lot of decisions, you get the management team in a huddle. Yeah. Uh, the staff have no idea what's being discussed. Um, they sometimes think some things are going wrong, but they have no idea what. Sure. So I think that, that transparency, it was, it was reflected. Was there ever a time when there was uh, pressure to reduce the £250 million target? Yeah, often. Okay. <laughs> and was that just at the beginning of the process or...? or no. Or, um, all the way through? It wasn't at the beginning. At the beginning, no. of course, everyone was enthusiastic. Right, okay. But then, of course, as things started to go wrong and wasn't quite going according to plan and then there was a point at which the appeal started to slow down a bit and so people say you know should, should we um, reduce the target mm. and I don't know whether I was just stubborn inflexible and out of touch 
or whether I was determined, single-minded and focused. Yeah. My feedback was always that I'd done the right thing. I, I never flinched. Right. We're going to go for 250 million. Yeah. And if anyone ever really turned that, I'd say we have to do it because of the children. If we, if we reduce our target, sure. we'll do less for children. If we can possibly achieve 250 million pounds, we must work to achieve that. And from what you said earlier, presumably, by the time you got to the point where the Full Stop campaign was in full swing, you had a, a clear idea of how the £250 million would be spent. So oh, yes. then, then by that point, if you start reducing that target, then yes. you, you know there's money yes. you're not going to be spending. Yes. And, so. you, and, you, and you know, you, it's like you have a people of choice. You know, what, what would you like us to cancel? This, this or this? Yeah. You know, which children would you like us not to help? And it, it all needs it. to happen in order to fulfil this goal. So, uh, but but, the, but the, there was a sense that once people had got the idea that we were going for two hundred fifty million, as I yeah. said, no, and nobody challenged the process. Um, a lot of challenge, of course, about the strategy, the tactics, etc. Mm, et that, mm. that was just as in any organisation. Um, but there was a sense in which all the staff in fundraising wanted it to succeed. Yeah. Um, so of those two naysayers, one left, right. the other stayed. Um, he was Grace's job, he wasn't a frontline fundraiser. He would come to every monthly meeting yeah. and say something or, or ask a difficult question or say something else. And it became, it, he wasn't a figure of fun, he, but he was. He, he became like part of the um, right, okay. part of the furniture, you know. I mean, you, I suppose you, it's you good to have those so challenges, isn't it? Absolutely, you know? yeah, and, and yeah. people enjoyed it. Yeah. But but people wanted to succeed. They they, mm. they didn't want it to be associated with failure. No. So because we were transparent, as you said, yeah. Because we maintained our single-minded focus, we carried people with us. Our target was 250 million, we actually raised 274 million. Yeah. Since then, I don't believe there's another charity that's raised it more than 100 million. Right. I, I believe in being aspirational. Mm. Um, and our centenary appeal, which was many years earlier, um, but which was also a record at its time, yeah. was for just 12 million pounds, which was a lot of money back in 1984. And the wonderful Countess McBatten of Burma, who was one of our trustees, said, isn't 12 million too high? Shouldn't we go for five million pounds? Yeah. And I said, you know, which would you rather have? A 10 million pound failure yeah. um, yeah. or a six million pound success? Sure. Of course, that, that won the day. So it, it seems to me that you, it, I would advise any charity to start by being aspirational, both with its mission and its, its fundraising target. Absolutely. Um, because it, it then causes you to think big. Yeah. If you, if you think small, you're never going to raise it. But if you think big, you can always, you know, if, if, if the trustees really don't like it. And we, on Full Stop Appeal, we took a year of a feasibility study to convince our trustees mm. to go ahead with it. So it, it was a time-consuming exercise. There's another factor um, about why people won't take the advice I've just given. And that is something that I've blogged about often, which yeah. is... I feel there's an enormous short-termism in mm. charity thinking. Sure. I think CEOs and SMTs, trustees, think in terms of money in, money out, this mm. year, performance against mm. budget, etc. Yeah. Going for a major appeal, you know, it, it 
what we thought about in 1995 was then launched four years later. Right. So that requires, it didn't require a lot of financial investment, but it required investment in thinking and time mm. um, and, and a long-term horizon. And a lot of trustees I meet don't have that long-term horizon. And it's, it's hard, I suppose, because one of the things is staff turnover. If, um, if staff turnover is <coughs> quite high, which it seems to be in fundraising compared to other areas, then, then you know, how do you, you pin those hopes on a team, don't you? But I suppose maybe you're pinning those hopes more on the culture, which maybe isn't changing as quickly as staff turnover, especially for smaller charities. Because you never know if there's a if there's a few years of planning, you're not sure at the beginning of that who's going to be at the end of it, are you? Well, I I knew that I wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. And some people did leave during mm. the appeal, and and uh, many of them haven't done a, a good job, got excellent jobs outside. Sure. Anyone that we were recruiting then into fundraising, yeah, they knew what they were letting themselves in for. Sure. That, you know, th there was nobody who joined the NSPTC and then on day one we said, oh, by the way, we're doing a 250 million pound right. deal. You know, they all knew we were. Yeah. And they had decided, either because of that or in spite of that, they were going to... Well, um, that's, it could have, been a good, could have been a draw for people, yeah, I, I suppose, so. couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Giles Pegram, thank you so much for contributing to Charity Not Chat. Not at all, it's a great pleasure, Sam. Thank you for inviting me. There we go, listeners. That was Giles Pegram, CBE, talking to us about the Full Stop campaign and how he managed with his team to raise £274 million for the NSPCC. Hopefully you enjoyed that podcast. We'd love to hear from you and hear how it went for you. And if you have any queries or questions about anything, please do get in touch with us. Similarly, if you're interested in getting more involved in the podcast, in addition to being a listener, uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. And you can find all of our contact information on our website, charitychat.org.uk. There's also information on there about Giles Pegram, who's now one of our contributors, and also some information there that you can use if you'd um, like to read more about the episode we've just spoken about. So uh, it just leaves it for me to say thank you to our sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksumit for beautifully designing our website, charitychat.org.uk, RR Yard Photography for the lovely images on our website, and finally, Forest of Fools will be playing us out right now. Cheerio!